Welcome to the last episode two. Featuring Wait and I will follow Written and performed by Zoe Vendetotse Twins Performed by Dan Fakeney We will start at the beginning Wait, and I will follow. Soft-faced and vulnerable-looking, he poked his toe at the edge of the car tyre. I could see him clearly from where I was sitting, and if he cared to look towards my unlit house, he could see me well enough. But he wouldn't think that anyone was watching him. I could tell, looking at the worn-down state of him, that he wasn't somebody who was noticed much. It wasn't my car he was working up to kicking, it was Philip's. Philip had left it behind and he wasn't due back for two more days. I was bored. No, not bored. Waiting. The boy brought his foot back, then gently nudged at the wheel. He looked up, then down the street. Come on, I felt like shouting. You can do better than that. He dragged a sleeve across his nose and tried again. Much better. This time he definitely kicked Philip's tyre. I wanted to open the window, lean out and applaud him. I wanted him to draw a key out of his pocket and decorate the silvery wing of the Audi with his frustration. But perhaps he wasn't frustrated. Perhaps he was waiting for someone or something. Or perhaps he had a perfectly nice family sitting at home, waiting anxiously for him to return. Maybe they were hostages to his whims and emotions. But I doubted it. He looked like he'd walked out of the advert for the NSPCC. He was pale and sunken-eyed. His shoulder sloped. His laces were probably undone. He looked like a cat torturer. I wondered what I would look like to him. Nothing, probably. Some woman, some mum or teacher or something. It was starting to get dark, but the weather was lovely and still. I'd spent the day in the garden digging holes and hiding things. My shoulders felt tight and warm. It was the most exercise I'd done for ages, and I felt well for it. Whether it was the action or the act, I couldn't tell. Perhaps I'd regret it later, but I doubted it. I'd been sitting for ages in the kitchen chair that I'd dragged through to the lounge window as a kind of test. I'd placed the chair in such a way that I was facing the window so I could count how many people passed. There was an extremely comfortable wing-backed armchair right next to me, but I knew I would fall asleep there. I was so ridiculously tired all the time that I needed to set myself challenges to keep on the ball, hence the unpadded seat with its ladder back and the hunt the objects game in the back garden, which I'd failed somewhat at. Two spoons and a brooch were in the future hands of domestic archaeologists now. I brought my attention back to the boy again. Now he was eyeing the aerial. He looked up and down the street again, then his attention was brought to me, or at least to the window. I automatically raised my hand in a wave. He nodded or maybe twitched. I stood up and, ignoring the pins and needles in my feet, watched him walk along the street. He pushed something through the post box at the end of the road and turned left up the hill and out of sight. 
I scrambled out of the house, determined not to lose sight of him. There was a fine, minutely needling rain which I hadn't seen from the house. I was coatless and was wearing flip-flops, but the ground was dry enough and I didn't think I'd be going too far. The boy moved at a good pace, but I was able to keep him in sight whilst hanging back far enough that he wouldn't see me. If he turned, I was prepared to walk up someone's path as if going home, but he didn't turn and I didn't need to hide. I wondered if he had a plan for where he was going or if, like me, he was adept at wasting time. I looked into people's windows as we walked up the hill. Most houses had a blue light flickering out into the darkening village. Perhaps they were all watching the same show. I had no idea what was popular anymore, not since I'd cut the plugs for the TV and radio. All that chatter. I could get that anywhere. I stopped in front of a curtainless living room and watched the family inside eating from plates on their knees, all transfixed on a big TV attached to the wall. They lifted food from their plates and slotted their cutlery into their mouths. None of them spoke. A baby standing in a playpen looked out at me menacingly, its upper lip curled around its dummy. I remembered what I was doing and hurried off again. I couldn't see the boy. I decided to see just where instinct took me. If I couldn't find him, I'd head home. I kept going up the hill and turned along the last street which curved around the brow, ending in a small wooded area. At last, I could see him. He was sitting on a wall right at the end of the street. He got up and began walking. I hurried to get closer to him, then he disappeared again. I almost ran to the end of the street to where the woods began. There was no sign of him. I wasn't sure what the best course of action was. Should I keep going or go home? But home to what? I stood still for what might have been a few minutes, my heart speeding and slowing. Why are you following me? He had appeared at my side and was peering up at me. He was smaller than I'd thought, but his voice was older, like he smoked. Following you? I tried to laugh lightly. Don't be ridiculous. You are. All the way from your street, he smiled. Don't be a silly boy. The smart, alecky look on his face was infuriating. I'm just out for a walk. Up here. I thought quickly. My dog's run off. He tipped his head back. You don't have a dog. I do. My voice rose. What's it called then? I thought of the only pet I'd ever owned. A tortoise shell kitten that I'd grown tired of immediately. Mitzi. Mitzi? That's a gay name. I didn't know what to say to that. Where's its lead then? Its lead is at home. It's very well trained. He laughed in a loud, ridiculously excessive manner. I half expected him to slap his knees. Anyway, I said, I need to go home. Why? What are you going to do? That's none of your business. Well, won't you need to find your dog first? I nodded grudgingly. Shall I help you? He bounded off into the woods, shouting, Here, Mitzi, Mitzi, Mitzi! like he was being filmed. I had no choice but to follow him and play along. Mitzi was a stupid name. I'd regretted it as soon as I'd said it, but it was too late. I was a lonely woman with a dog called Mitzi. Hopefully Mitzi had been run over and I'd be free of her. The boy's voice bounced around the shadowy woods. He sang out the dog's name, throwing it away from himself and gathering it back in. It was like he was everywhere and yet I couldn't see him. I probably should have gone home at that point. The course of action I'd chosen wasn't illuminating anything. Then he was beside me again. His eyes shone up at me in the gloom. Can't find her. Oh, well. Nobody knew where we were. Anything could happen. 
He was waiting for me to act, I think. He was giving me the same look that Philip was inclined to give me, blank but pointed. I could hear rustling in the bushes around us but couldn't see anything. The boy kept looking steadily at me. What? I asked, trying not to sound spooked. You're the one who followed me. I didn't follow you. I took a breath. I told you, I've lost my dog. He leaned in towards me. You shouldn't tell lies, you know. I shook my head as if it was all some silly joke. Should you? His voice wasn't loud or rude. He was talking to me patiently as if I was the child. I should have been outraged, but he was right. My head dipped. He leaned towards me and snuggled his head into my breast. I stood stock still, frightened to move. Then he nipped at me with his teeth. It wasn't sore. It was the sort of thing a lover would do. Everything went silent. My hands half rose but then stilled. He pulled back and looked at me calmly. Go on now, he said, his hand hovering near my arm. You should go home. Maybe he's waiting for you. He smiled and then disappeared into the trees. I stood for a few minutes and then, sure the child was watching me, I went back the way I'd come. Twins. On the Friday I watched the clock until I felt sick. It was the end of October and the days were sitting in mid-dark, paths wet with leaves. The street lights came on and I left the house, fake nonchalant in orange light, slowing my stride once I got out of sight at the front door where I knew my parents, solicitous to the end, would be lingering. I headed down the driveway in our row, rounded the corner and waited across the street from the twins' house behind a parked car. The trees in their garden obscured most of the front windows and hung wild and uncut over the walls to the pavement. The lawn was long enough that the old bath they sat in during the summer with their heads at either end and books in their hands was almost hidden, with only a ceramic lip of it glowing in the shadow. There was a garland of plastic flowers like a Hawaiian wreath hanging from its fittings. I could hear music from inside the house and saw movement in the upstairs window. The blinds were down. I knocked and their mother answered. She was tall and thin and looked older up close. Her hair had a streak of white in it and was twisted back behind her ears. I could see Amy in her eyes and nose. Amy with experience and an ex-husband I'd never seen. I mumbled something and she stared around me, her eyes never quite settling on my face. I had somehow never even considered the idea of the twins' mother being there. had edited her out of every scenario. It was as though my own parents had just walked in behind me. If she was there, my impression of a man based solely on rumour and music videos wouldn't work. She said the girls would be down in a minute and told me to sit. As I leaned back into the blankets draped over the couch, I felt like I was sinking into a scene from a high school movie. I was the prom date guy, fumbling with a corsage, braces in my mouth. I took off my jacket whilst I was sitting down, trying to move my body as little as possible. Tugged it out from behind me and held it across my knees, a brown fleeced comfort blanket. I watched their mother through the door to the kitchen. She was clinking some glass, pouring something. She was wearing a cardigan and a dress, sandals. I tried not to allow my brain to connect the dots between her and the shape of Amy. I remember the living room was large and warm, that hippie enclave, I thought, full of books and pinned-up paintings. There was a piano and a desk, candlelight. 
It smelled of plants. I couldn't see a television. The music was coming from the stairs in the back of the room. Something 70s and muffled sounding. Was the party happening up there? Was I in a waiting room to be let in? I looked up and caught their mother's eyes for an agonizingly long second. She was looking at me from the kitchen. A thump came from upstairs, the sound of feet moving across the ceiling, and her head disappeared behind the door. A moment later, she came back into the room and sat down behind me with a tall glass of something I didn't look at. I could feel her at the back of my head, the scrape of a wooden chair, the sound of the glass settling on the table. I sat forward, the arm of my jacket falling off my knees, twisting my head round to look at her, perched, inscrutable, and Amy-faced. My mum said she saw you in the shop the other day, I said. That was what I said, and I had nowhere else to go. All conversation cards on the table dealt. Really, she said. Her voice was quiet. Yeah, she was in there the other day. I looked at her drink. It was black. She drank a bit and set it down. Seconds ground out into space. Uh, our uh, Amy and... And then they came downstairs. The way I picture this initial descent now is an art nouveau freeze, a climped petals spilling, white gowns trailing in the breeze around their toes. Their feet were probably bare. I don't remember hair so much as a glow around their heads. The guitar riff from the start of There She Goes was playing, and I think I stood up, sprang to attention. Amy came first, with Kirsten as her ghost, close behind. They were laughing, and one of them was singing the song that played upstairs, leading its thread of melody down to me, down to my face and my hands and my hair. At first they acted like I wasn't there, barely glanced in my direction. I wasn't sure exactly how I had come to be the only person there. I was so careful to arrive late. The noises of movement from upstairs had stopped. And anyway, if there had been anyone else up there, how could they have failed to follow after these two, resist the urgent pull of their lambent wake, their echoing slipstream? I would have followed them then and there, out of the door and into the night, gone forever. Amy asked me if I was okay. My head wrenched. Yeah, yeah, cool. I uh, guess I'm kind of early then. Who else is coming? I may have imagined a glance between them, a flickered smile, on then off. Holly and Kieran will be here in a bit, Kirsten said. They're getting more drinks. I glanced at their mother. No response to drinks. Ah, yeah, cool. Amy skipped into the kitchen and started to clatter in the fridge. Kirsten started singing again, matching the tune of the song from upstairs. He will do you, he'll do me, he's got that kind of loving. It was a Linda Ronstadt song, or a cover of a song that she sang. I've looked it up. Kirsten was over in the corner, pouring something out of a decanter. Her mother hadn't moved, but I could feel her staring in my direction again. Abruptly, she stood up and gathered her cardigan around her. Girls, she said, I'm going up now. They didn't answer, kept dancing around, drinking from glasses. Amy thrust one into my hands and dived back into the couch where I'd been sitting. Kirsten came over to join her, kneeling behind, her hair sprawling over the arm. Sit down, they said in unison, laughing at their own synchronicity. A cartoon. So I did, and I drank. The next hour was a blur of what I imagined then as my peak of suavity, a stream of charming and miraculous one-liners, and of arms brushing against each other, and more drinks and sudden, interruptive bursts of song. At one point, the music upstairs stopped, and Amy ran up to fix it, spent a few moments starting the album over again. At no stage was there any mention or sign of the others turning up. I didn't bring it up, nor did they. I felt myself sink into the couch, felt it soften beneath me. 
My jokes kept working better than they had any right to. They laughed, loudly, ridiculously, looking at each other when they did. I looked up at the clock, at the window, dark outside, pitch black, late for anyone else to arrive at a party. At a certain point, there was a padded thud from upstairs. Something tinkled. Amy sat up a bit and let her smile go squint. Then she quickly restarted the joke, tugged at Kristen's hair smilingly and turned to look at me with her eyes that were bigger than Kristen's and said, Do you want to go upstairs for a bit? At which point I knew that something in the natural order of things had slipped. That at that very moment my friends, blissfully unaware, tucked up in their little homes with their mums and dads, probably watching TV, were missing out on everything that mattered, had fallen behind and away from me in a split second. The next time I saw them, I knew who would be calling the shots. There was nine words, as it turned out, with a passphrase to everything I'd ever needed. No matter what happened next, and I knew there was no way I was ready for anything at all, I had won. I was suitable for upstairs. Yeah, cool, I said. I took my jacket with me. And we went up. The twins' room was large and pink and orange, with two beds parallel to each other and a wooden cupboard set into the wall. Toys, books, beads hung over light fittings and bedsteads. More flowers. The beds were unmade, a tangle of sheets and blankets and what looked like rugs dragged up onto the mattress. It was hard to see where the beds began. They grew out of the softness, the carpet and clothes and cushions. I sat in a rocking chair, squashing a doll and a skirt, and my thoughts, every last one of them, danced around the room like sunspots. The girls melted into their natural habitat, flicking through notebooks for secrets, spinning around, changing the songs on the stereo, laughing and singing. When we got back to talking, it turned out they could swear and they knew everyone. They were not entirely made of feathers. We drank more and I felt myself warp blissfully into the same sort of cartoon they were. Loud, unrealistic, indestructible. Can you tell us apart? Kirsten said suddenly. Amy stopped turning and looked over, listened for my answer. What? Yeah, you're totally different. A look, a laugh. Different how? Amy said. She held up her fringe, rolled over on the bed next to where Kirsten was sitting. Look, I'm her and she is me. They pulled each other's faces, collapsed in hysterics. Well, for starters, I began, you're a better singer. My attempt at a joke, teasing something out. They laughed, sang something in mock harmony. They rolled over again so they were lying together, facing me, chins propped on hands, hair and faces. But you can't tell us apart from our voices, Amy said. Try me. All right, shut your eyes and you have to guess who's speaking. I did as I was bid, rictus grinned in place. I heard them scramble across the opposite ends of the room. Hello, my name is Amy, one of them said. My name is Kirsten. I started laughing, pointing my fingers. Amy and Kirsten. Open my eyes, fits of laughter, laughing harder than me. Back onto the bed, back to staring. Still no other party guests. Still me sitting in their room. Darkness outside, pink inside. All right, Kirsten said. Test number two. Her hand on Amy's back, I could see it. You have to close your eyes. Don't open them no matter what. If you open them, you're like the world's biggest cheater. Stupid, drunk, eyes shut. A glass still cool in my hand, grinning. I heard them moving the rustle of blankets padded feet towards me, felt my smile slip a bit, pushed it back up. They were close now, hovering. It had started to rain, I realised. I could hear it on the roof. 
Okay, one of them said. I recognised Amy's voice. Remember, if you open them, you are so totally out. Their breath coated me from either side. I filled in the blanks, imagined them tucking their hair behind their ears as they bent forward. I was made of cinema now. They moved around, swapping places. Right, keep still. Giggling. I felt lips on mine. Mine that were drier than dust. My smile holding itself up by a thread. They touched, hot, and moved away. I coughed, laughed, focused on keeping my arms and legs from flapping away. Made a noise. Started telling this story to my friends in my head. They couldn't believe it. Died inside. I changed my mind. and keep it a secret, a hidden weapon, a trump card. Our friendship, as it was, as equals, bandmates, cracking jokes about TV shows, was done. I had graduated early. A second set of lips touched mine, a little cooler than the first. They hesitated, held. The sound in the room, the roof, stopped and started up again. I heard feet moving, bodies jumping onto the bed. I opened my eyes, dragged myself back from the future. Two pairs of eyes, one a little bigger than the other, peered up at me. A tongue sticking out, jostling each other, laughing. No way you're guessing that right. I had no clue. I guessed. They fell about. I heard a noise from somewhere in the room and Amy quickly started to sing over the top of it, making up words of her own to the song that was playing, stupid words about kissing. I remember Kirsten sitting up on her knees and then whispering something to her. Amy nodded, kept singing, but softly, her eyes lost under her fringe. The twins moved together and sat on the edge of the bed, four bare legs hanging to the carpet, toes curled. They became very poised and quiet then. Kirsten sat her drink on the nightstand and switched off the stereo. After a moment they looked at me again, watched my elbow slip on the arm of my chair, my toe tap. Let's play another game then, Amy said. See if you can tell us apart in the dark. I laughed, took a drink. In the cupboard. It's pitch black in there. If you can tell us apart, you win. I climbed in. The cupboard had slatted wooden doors and ran the length of one entire wall, a pine frame in the pink undergrowth. A string of little bells hung from one of the handles and they chimed and clattered as we scraped open the door, dragging it across the thick carpet. I half recognised the sound they made from somewhere earlier in the evening. The room had fogged over as soon as I got up from the chair and I felt my drunken clumsiness spill outwards, awkward angles and knees against the wood as I stooped inside. Hands touched my back, encouraging me in, into the coats and dresses and hangers and down on top of a pair of boots, clothes pressing in on me from all sides. The air was different in there, cooler and a little damp, and it was deep, space singing away into blackness. I felt ridiculous, elated, a plaything. I thought about the invitation, the threads sewn into paper. There was a jacket across my face, my hair pressed into my eyes. Seconds passed and I became aware of myself again, bodily functions, my breath hot against the fabric. The night had bounded out of sight, become sensational. At that moment, the jacket round my head felt reassuringly, wonderfully solid. I could hold it, manipulate it myself. I'll be in control of this later, I remembered, when I tell the story. On the bus, in the pitch. In that version, these boots won't be digging into my tailbone. The cupboard will smell less strange, less clammy. I felt time start to pass again, linearity take up a beat. The room had fallen quiet, not a sound. Had one of them come in after me? I hadn't felt anyone follow. The giggling, singing, chatting had stopped. 
I propped myself forward and leaned to the cupboard door, squinted between the slats. It was hard to see. You had to keep lifting and lowering your head to get a proper view. I pressed my face up close, peered, and here's where things start to crack, where I've spent years pouring in bits of nightmares and television shows and special effects. I get to this point in the night and it snaps back at me. I can see the girls sat together on the bed. They were facing the cupboard, staring at it, at the space where I was crouched like a dog. They were perched bolt upright, side by side, hands in their laps. Their feet still dangled, legs glistening. All the lights had been turned off, bar one bedside lamp, amber and low. Amy's eyes were bigger than her sister's. I felt them through the wooden bars. My ankle cramped and I shifted. What were they waiting for? Something in the scene started to drain the alcohol out of me, through my face into the covered air. I pushed gently on the door, not entirely wanting it to open. Whatever was happening here now, whatever weird game shit this was, this seemed like the right side of the door to be on. I tested it and it held still, too still. There was a door stop or something, an object in front of it. Then something swelled behind me. Fingers slid into my hair, onto my forehead, and from somewhere else. Nails in my arm. The evening gave out and dropped through the floor. I remember a tangle of coats in the darkness, panicking and tearing them down with their hangers, the crack of slats breaking in the door, yelling and pushing and crashing out, the carpet against my face and the shame in my knees and legs and the twins, implacable and silent, watching it happen from far away. I remember the face behind me, old and thin and wide-eyed, tangled hair with a streak of white, on all fours with our breasts hanging. Then it's just flashes, memories like blurry Polaroids. The stairs, the empty living room, the latch on the door, the night. I stayed off school for a while, and when I went back, the twins had somehow changed classes. Later that month, a man started showing up at their house regularly. He drove in a state car, and I saw the girls getting into it a few times late at night. He seemed to move in, for a while at least. I even saw him cut the grass once or twice in the spring, and the bath disappeared. He seemed to be taking care of them. The year after that, Kirsten changed schools, started waiting at the bus stop at the other end of the street. Amy dyed her hair. They were older before the other things happened. 